All right. Well, tonight we are uh, continuing this series on the Christian and the government. Uh, This is week three. Um, And you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Um, Hopefully you got the the notes page. If not, there should be more copies at either entrance. Um, And so week one, we, we kind of looked briefly at three key texts in the New Testament that give us some explicit commands about how we're to relate and respond to the government and why. Um, Then last week, we talked about some possible exceptions to that. Uh, And so you can see the list of the the exceptions we talked about last time there. Uh, And I said last week that, you know, these are things that, you know, I think there's some legitimacy there, but there's also a lot of ways that these can be abused or misapplied. Uh, And so we need to be really careful And so to do that well, I think we need to go back and look more closely at Romans 13. Uh, This is the longest and sort of most uh, extensive treatment of how we should respond to the government and why. And so we really want to try to understand this text carefully to sort of set ourselves up to consider, well, how do we apply these exceptions and when? Uh, How do we do that rightly? Uh, Is there validity to all of these. Um, now, ideally, we'd, be, we'd have the time all in one session to, to kind of look carefully at Romans 13 and then look at all the exceptions. Unfortunately, it's just it's not going to happen tonight. So tonight, we're at least going to try to get through Romans 13 to kind of understand that better. Uh, and again, that's setting up to then consider <clears throat> you know, these, these possible exceptions. When would they apply or when might they not? How might they be misapplied? So, With that said, uh, we're going to turn to Romans chapter 13, where Paul, you know, he's in the middle of this letter to the Romans, and and he begins talking about how Christians should respond to the government. And on one level, uh, chapters 1 through 11, he's really focusing on theology, on the gospel. Then chapters 12 and following, he's talking about sort of how we should live in light of that. So, you know, this is one of the issues that he obviously thinks is very important. He wants to address practically. Um, also, you'll notice that at the end of chapter 12, he talks about vengeance and how we shouldn't try to get vengeance for ourselves. We should leave it to the wrath of God. And so, you know, you might think, well, does that mean that, that you know, God has just made no provision for any sort of justice to happen until Judgment Day? Well, I think it's one of the things he's going to sort of flesh out here. Um, also, you know, as he talks about how we're to live in light of the gospel, he's going to stress that we should not be conformed to this world, right? Ultimately, we have a, a different king. We're, we're, we're looking forward to a future kingdom and, you know, a new age, um, and, and we have a greater hope beyond this world. And so, you know, maybe Christians are thinking, well, you know, does that mean, does the gospel mean that therefore these these earthly institutions are just sort of irrelevant now you know are are we past that well I think Paul wants to clarify no that actually we still live in this age and so there's a very important function for government so with that said that context let's I'm going to read Romans 13 verses 1 through 7 and then we're going to walk through it together so Paul says let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 
For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now, what is the main command in these verses? Be subject. Yeah, right there in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And when he says the governing authorities, what, what do you think he means by that? Nero, okay. Yeah, I mean, he, this, this is called Romans. He's writing to those who are in Rome. So he would mean the emperor. He would also mean the governors. You know, we read about Pontius Pilate. And, you know, what, there's a whole complex Roman system of government. But that's what he means, okay? And, and, you know, he seems to be speaking generally of sort of governing authorities in general. But if anything, this means the Roman authorities, okay? And then, so he gives this command, and then he gives a why. So what, what reason is given? Well, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Okay, so be subject for or because they have been instituted by God. Now, how does Paul know that the Roman authorities were instituted by God? Okay, yeah, God's sovereign. And he says, there is no authority except from God. Right, so all authority comes from God. So if there's anyone who has any authority, it's from God. Now, does the point Paul's making here depend on how good or godly the government is? No. Does, does Paul's argument depend on whether the government is operating based on the consent of the governed? Again, no. I mean, in fact, interestingly, Rome sort of started off as a republic, and then it had become an empire. It had, be, it had shifted much more totalitarian. And, and yet, Paul says, those that exist have been instituted by God. Uh, so, so I think right from the start, I mean, we need to have a big enough view of God's sovereignty to see that he can raise up and use even fallen, broken, sinful governments and leaders. Um, in, in fact, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, Daniel says, The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. So God is the one who is sovereignly in control. God is the one who institutes governing authorities. And that means that honoring them and submitting to them is not, we shouldn't do that just because we agree with them. It's not just because we voted for them. It's not because we like them, but because God appointed them. Now, sometimes people will say things like, well, Joe Biden, he's not my president. I didn't vote for him. Donald Trump, he's not my president. I didn't vote for him. That really should not be us, right? We, we should say whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Well, that is my president because 
There is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. So therefore, what happens if we don't submit? And notice the opposite of submit here would be resist. So what happens then? Okay, good. Yep. Okay. Now, now in the text, it says specifically, we will incur judgment, right? Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, whose judgment do you think he's talking about there? Okay. Okay, yeah. And, and then he was also just talking about how we're resisting what God has appointed. So, so I think chiefly he means God's judgment. Right? We resist what God has appointed, therefore we incur God's judgment. Now, I think in verses 3 and 4, it's, it, it's, he is going to show part of the way that God's judgment is exercised and expressed is through the hand of the state. Those are not like totally separate, but I think chiefly here he has God's judgment in view. Well, then we come down to verse 3, and this brings us to another four, so another reason. And, and as reflected in the, the diagram in your notes, I think this is a second reason backing up the command in verse 1 to be subject. Okay, so uh, if verse one, if verse 2 is primarily about... Um, you know, God's judgment, well, then I think this is now he's, he's sort of shifting folks to talk about the reality of the judgment or the sword of the state. And he's saying, um, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Okay, so be subject because they're instituted by God and be subject because... God, as he's going to talk about their God's deacons, God has sent them to punish evil and praise good. They're, they're not here to be a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Uh, they're serving a good purpose. Uh, now, was the Roman government actually doing this? Were they a terror to bad conduct and not to good? Okay. Yeah, I mean, clearly there are exceptions. You know, Rome crucified Jesus. Paul got, you know, wrongly imprisoned in Philippi for like rescuing a demon possessed girl. But I think what Paul's clearly saying here is yes. I mean, he, he's not, he doesn't say submit to them when they're doing this or if they're doing this. I mean, he, he's, he's just asserting for this is what they are. Right? Four rulers are actually, like he's just speaking about what they are, they're not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Um, you know, I, I, I listened to one sermon by someone preaching through this, and basically, you know, his, his argument was, you know, Rome, we know Rome was not doing this, and therefore Paul's not talking about Rome. But you go back and read the text, and it's like, but, but, but Paul's writing to Romans, he's saying submit. I mean, I, I, I don't think there's a way around that. You know, and the striking thing is that he is going to characterize this government that is far from perfect as 
accomplishing something good. It's being a terror to bad conduct uh, and not to good. And, and I think that should challenge us to sort of think about, you know, what's the first thing that comes into our minds when, you know, we think about the government? Do, do, do we just instantly think, you know, they're, they're just in our way. They're, they're just opposing us. They're, they're sort of, you know, this, this terror to good conduct. Or do we have the perspective like in 1 Timothy 2 where we're thankful for the government? And I think this text should challenge us with what is our perspective? You know, yes, there's exceptions. Um, you know, I, I don't think Paul is trying to say that absolutely in every case the government's perfectly doing this, but he's characterizing the government that way. And that, that is going to be pretty significant as we start thinking about sort of exceptions and how to apply them. I think we, we'll come back to that. Yes. No, so because I think in the first couple verses there, when he says there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. I mean, the striking thing is it's really an argument from God's sovereignty, not from, okay, we can look at the way that the government came to power. Because the reality through history is there's all sorts of immoral ways that power was accrued. So I think that's part of what's striking about Paul's argument here. So, yeah, good question. Um, So therefore, Paul continues, so if this is the purpose and what the government, they're not a terror to to, to good conduct but to bad, therefore, if we do what's good, well, we'll receive his approval. We we won't have to be afraid of them or terrified by them. We might even be positively commended. You know, maybe Paul has in mind here, one commentator said that the Romans uh, would sometimes publish inscriptions of the names of public benefactors, so some way of sort of approving of good. Um, But then he says that this is because, for he is God's servant for your good. And the word servant there is the same as the word deacon, okay? So the government, this ruler is functioning as God's deacon, which is striking because these are you know, pagan rulers. They don't even recognize that Yahweh's God, and yet Paul says, but they're God's deacons for our good. Now, what do you think that means? Jason? Okay. Good. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so I think, you know, basically what it's saying is that they are to promote good by, by have, making laws and then enforcing them. They're, they're promoters of good. They're, they're deacons for good. So insofar as the laws they're making are corresponding to, to God's moral standards, God's law, like don't kill people, don't steal, they are deacons for our good. Right? So I don't think this means they're, they're deacons for our good in the sense of, you know, like when they persecute us for preaching the gospel, you know, God uses trials for good. I don't think that's what this is saying. But
But I do think it's saying, you know, if I'm tempted to retaliate against my neighbor, but then I think twice and think, but I might face legal repercussions, so I'm not going to do that. Well, in that way, the government has been God's deacon to me for good because it prevented me from doing something, you know, evil that I otherwise might have done. So we should be thankful for that sort of purpose of the government. On the other hand, Paul says, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Now, what do you think this sword is? Rob? Yeah, I, I mean, I think ultimately we, we, we have to define good in terms of what's good in God's sight. Right, so, but... Yes. Yeah, I don't think Paul's really dealing with here, well, what happens when they're commanding something and what God's commanding is, like, opposed to that. So that's something we need to come back to. Um, and yep. Yes. Yes. So I think he's assuming that to a very large degree, the kind of things the government is making laws about and enforcing are things that are going to sort of correspond to God's will and God's law. Yep. Good. Yeah, I think so. Um, okay, so then he says that, the, that he bears the sword, not in vain. What do you think he means by the sword? Jason? Okay. Yeah, so on one level, I mean, this Romans literally use swords to cut people's heads off, right? Um, but I think more generally, the sword represents their authority to enforce justice. Um, so in the same way scripture talks about the church having the authority of the keys, right? We, we can preach the gospel, we can recognize who a true believer is. Well, the state has the authority of the sword, a coercive power to coerce people to obey something. Okay, so he says he doesn't bear the sword in vain, but is for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, okay? So, so he is carrying out wrath through the exercise of the sword. Well, then he says in verse 5, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So this is sort of the, the summary. I think this is a summary of his argument he's just made. So the command from the beginning, be subject, is restated. And then the rationale is summarized. Uh, this is to avoid wrath and for conscience sake. Um, now, what do you think he means by for conscience sake? How does that come into the argument? Yep. Yeah, good. Yeah, in fact, the word gods in God's wrath, the, 
God is not there. Uh, that, that's a pretty significant interpretation by the ESV, whereas pretty much every other English translation just says wrath. Uh, so it's a little more ambiguous, which actually I think kind of helps because the point is don't just submit to avoid punishment. Don't just submit so the state doesn't come after you. Don't even just submit because you don't want God to punish you, but submit for conscience sake. Submit because you recognize that it's right. You recognize that God has actually instituted the state for a good purpose, and therefore you should submit. Right? We, we, we should feel a sense of conscientious obligation. Yeah, so certainly, like, as a Christian, if I'm, someone robs me, well, I, I should, I'm not, I'm always called to forgive in the sense of from the heart, but that doesn't mean I'm wrong to, like, seek, report it to the police and say, yeah, I would like to press charges because I think that person should be held accountable. Yes. 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 Um, all right, I'm sorry. In, in the interest of time, let me just tie this together at the end. So then verse 6, for because of this you also pay taxes. So now I think I, I'm interpreting this as a second command. Um, and why should we pay taxes? Well, for reason, the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Well, what thing? Well, I think probably he especially means appraising good, punishing evil. Um, so... We should pay taxes. And then verse 7 is, in one sense, the conclusion where he kind of gives this summary application. Um, but I diagrammed it there in the chart as an inference or a therefore because I think a key inference Paul's drawing here is that taxes are owed. Um, you know, they're God's ministers attending to this very thing, so we should pay them taxes. Right? This kind of cuts against the mantra, taxation is theft. Um, Biblically, well, well, they're owed. Now, that doesn't mean taxes can't be sort of unreasonably high. That doesn't mean the government can't abuse that. But I think Paul's emphasizing here that we should view, like, proper taxes as something that's, that's owed. Like, we, we should recognize God has instituted governing authorities for this good purpose and be ready to render to them what taxes so that they can fulfill that. Um, so, so pay to all what's owed, echoing Jesus' own words, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Uh, now, again, I'm sorry to have to split this in half because, uh, as I said at the beginning, we want to come back and think, okay, so uh, how does this relate to those exceptions we talked about, right? And, and, and I think, you know, we feel some, some of the tension there, well, we'll this is describing a very, very positive role of the government. So what do we do in those times when it feels like they're not fitting into this? 
Uh, so we want to work through that next time, um, but we'll have to wait till then. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time to, to wrestle with your word together. Uh, thank you that we can sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. I pray that this would spark conversations uh, not only here corporately, but, but just uh, as individuals throughout the week. Uh, and Lord, I pray that through all of this, ultimately, uh, we would be brought uh, to, to love you more, to, to trust you more, uh, to have a, a, a right perspective uh, toward your world and specifically governing authorities that you have put in place. Uh, and Lord, we pray all of these things looking forward to Christ and his eternal kingdom. In his name we pray. Amen. And now let's uh, stand and conclude by singing our benediction, uh, which is printed at the bottom of the front.